So on to the second part of uh, what we began a couple of Lord's Day mornings ago, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and the overall title, Learning to Love. So verse 4 through to the 7 is what we're looking at today. To talk about the sunum bonum of life may mean very little to us. After all, we're not running about through the streets and in our own homes conversing in the Latin language, are we? I couldn't wait to drop Latin and eventually got it out of the system in Form 3 those many, many years ago. But it could be fine if we were a collection of philosophers or maybe medical people or whatever, or in the law profession, we might well be acquainted with the term that we have up on screen right now. Summum bonum, Latin for the highest good. And it's an expression you'll find used in philosophy to look to that which is of the ultimate importance, the singular, the ultimate end that human beings in their mind should be pursuing. Now, with this definition in mind, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where we were a couple of weeks ago coming back to today, the summum bonum of life is love. One of the Bible descriptions of God himself, you'll find in 1 John 4 and verse 8, where we are told that God is love. It is an attribute, a perfection, a characteristic or feature of God, a very plain description of him. We don't stagger with that, wonder what does it mean by that, this personification of his character. But we remember, because the same writer, John here in 1 John Reminds us there's a balance. God is love, yes, but in the same book, God is light. And so he holds this perfect characteristic in total balance with all of his other perfections. But he is, the Bible declares it, love. And the fact that he is love, it means that we should, the people of God today, we should be reflecting the love of God in all of our interactions with people around us. In our dealings with others, we should be reaching out in love. First Peter 4, the verse 8, and above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. Romans 13 and 10, love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And then right down to the bottom of our chapter here in 1 Corinthians 13, in the verse 13, the greatest of these is charity. So love, we find, is at the high point of everything. And it's that number one ingredient that you and I need if we're ever going to attune our Christian life to the character of God. If we're going to properly reflect Him to a society that is broken, that is hurt, that is wounded, that is lacking in love, that understands anything but love because there is so much fake material out there, then we as God's people need to be loving. It's sad to say that love, no matter how urgent, how important, how divine indeed it is, is very often a missing feature from the CV of God's own people, the church. And here's an example in front of us, the letter that we are looking at today. The church at Corinth could boast about many, many things. 
They could say, well, you know, we possess a multiplicity of spiritual gifts, and they did. And we have within our ranks a wealth of very accomplished preachers, and I would have loved to be able to tune in to some of the preachers they were hearing back then. No doubt, many of them right in the mold of some of the greatest Bible teachers ever, Paul and Apollos and others, and they had in that church a terrific grasp of Bible doctrine, and they had a great facility there for reaching out to the lost in that very strategic city of Corinth where there were many visitors flooding in all the time, but even with all of these things going for them, positive factors, big advantages, Paul said, your efforts combined add up to zero. Now, that was hardly encouraging, and why did he say that? Because love was missing, and anything minus love gives a zero rating. So therefore, in 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul is underlining the absolute necessity and the urgency of love. The word that he uses throughout in this chapter is the Greek word agape, the strongest, highest, purest, most expansive, defining term that he could pull in to describe this quality of love. There have, of course, we know there have been many definitions of love. A whole plenitude of books about love filling libraries and bookstores today, songs featuring love. And I logged two words into Google just for interest's sake, love songs. I expected a large response. I got a large response. 435 million entries in response to love songs, including a million love songs, a song by Take That, by the way. And we have poems about it, we have discussions about it, we have conferences about it, we have seminars about love. Everybody thinking they know what real love is all about, however. When you've said it all, read it all, when you've sung it all, when you've recited it all, when you've defined it all, we haven't even scratched the surface of this topic until we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the verse 4 through to the verse 7. Because right here, we have the most comprehensive description of love that anybody has ever penned. And no wonder, because it's God's own personal depiction of what real love actually is. And this love is described, you will note here, in terms of the actions that it performs. You'll never find the Bible defining love in terms of attitudes or an abstract or a feeling or a philosophy or an ideology. The Bible only describes love in terms of action. Love is not an attitude. It's not an abstract. It's not merely a feeling. Love is a deed, an activity. John MacArthur points out that in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 to 7, in our English Bible, love is described here by the use of adjectives. So you're back into the English class, never mind the Latin class in the introduction today. Love is patient, adjective. Love is kind, love is this, and love is not that. And so we have a whole stream of adjectives used here in 1 Corinthians 13 to describe what love is and what love isn't. 
But in the Greek Bible, if you were reading the original today, you'll find that each of these descriptions of love is actually a verb, and verbs describe action. Love is only love, in other words, when it acts. Two Lord's Day mornings ago, therefore, under the title, The Primacy of Love. We looked at the first section in the chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, therefore verse 1 through to the verse 3. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. What's he saying? The sum total of all of this is languages or prophecies, preachings, knowledge, benevolence, or martyrdom do not mean anything without love. It didn't matter what the Corinthians did if they were doing it without love. And it does not matter what we do if we do it without love. It adds up to nothing. Again, a preacher surveyed the first three verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And the summary that he gave was pretty simple and basic and very straightforward pretty cutting as well. He said, in fact, you can look at the passage in the following way. Verse 1, it says, the loveless person produces nothing of value. Verse 2 says, the loveless person is himself of no value. Verse 3 says, the loveless person receives nothing of value. Life minus love equals zero. Now, in Revelation chapter 2, the verse 2 to 4, the charge is laid at the gate of the church in the city of Ephesus. Our Lord is speaking to them, charging them, and He says, I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. In other words, here's a church, and it's all industry. It's really working hard. It's putting in the man hours. It held to the proper doctrine all the way through. However, in verse 4, the Lord says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. And no matter what they were doing in terms of activity, it didn't matter. It didn't amount to anything because they had lost the love that should have been the fuel that sent their engine going forward. Now, we know what the Lord did in this instance here. He removed the candlestick. The church died as a result of that, and it has never been there since. Love if it's not present, means life comes up with a total of zero. And any church can find itself in the same situation as that in Ephesus. If it doesn't have love, and any individual Christian 
can find themselves in the same position. Now, how do we avoid this situation? Well, let's take a further look at the language of love we have here in the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So, we have looked at the primacy of love, verse 1 to 3. We're looking now at the profile of love, verse 4 through 7. The profile of love. We're exploring its features. We're asking, well, how does real love express itself in terms of how the Bible describes it here? How do we know that we are exercising as the people of God real love? What does it mean to love? You find Paul describes it in both positive and negative ways here. Verse 4 to 7, we'll read again, Charity suffereth long, it is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. And to see if you're doing a little bit of calculation here, There are 15 features between verse 4 and verse 7 where love is being described. It reminds me of a beam of light hitting a prism. And as that prism divides that single beam of light into all of its different colors. So the apostle here, he takes love and he shoots it into the prism and it comes out 15 different colors, all of which are describing the features and the perfections of what builds up into real love. So we've got a spectrum of love in 1 Corinthians 13 and the verse 4 through 7. Before we delve into any of these descriptions, and I'm only going to look at two this morning, let me say that I'm convinced Paul is using here, just like an artist would have a figure that he brings into the studio, sits down, then the artist begins to paint on the canvas a true resemblance of that figure, that model that he has brought in. Paul is using the Lord Jesus Christ as his model in painting this portrait of love. This passage describes him. Each one of the features, all 15, can be traced in the gospel records to the life and to the ministry of Jesus Christ. Each one is true of him. The first two that we have here are a good general description of love. And it's important as we make our way through the catalog here, it's important that we don't just read them, work out, well, that's what that means. The key thing is that we apply them. That we say, Lord, make me into the model in the studio that these features can be seen in my life. So when tracing the characteristics of love as God defines them three here by the pen of the Apostle Paul. He's showing to these believers in Corinth, this is very open, this is very honest, this is right in their face. They're feeling in the area of love. And he's saying, here's love. Here's how it manifests itself. Now you have to measure up to this standard. Check it out. 
You go in, for example, to Coltraw, Folk and Country Park, and into the police station there, and you've got the old wooden gauge to check your height. And of course, if you're part of a group, everybody has to get on there and get the measurement there. Well, with 15 features of love here, and Paul is saying, come on and measure yourself. See how you fit. The first characteristic of love is that it displays patience. Charity suffereth long. There's an Old Testament, characteristic Old Testament word. And it takes the second and the third word there and joins word three to the beginning of word two and it's long suffering. And that's a great definition of patience. Charity suffereth long. It is long-suffering. Patience, that's the way we respond to others. And the Greek word that we have here for patience is always used in the New Testament to describe patience with people. Rather than patience with our circumstances, patience with people. It's describing somebody who was slow to anger. Somebody has said here, patience is letting your engine idle when you feel like stripping the gears. You're about to blow up, go forward, take everything in front of you, but no, you just engage neutral. Let the engine tick over our purr. To take an old quotation here from Chrysostom, away back in the days of the early church, he said, it is the word which is used of the man who is wronged and who has it easily in his power to avenge himself, but will never do it. Love expresses itself in the field of patience. Now, let's have some reasons for patience. Why should you and I be patient? We should be patient because God is patient. Read through the Bible. See how patient he was with Israel. See as well how patient he was with Nineveh. And he gave them repentance under the preaching of Jonah. We're told as well the second coming of Christ has drawn out a lot of people over the years in mockery. And they're saying, oh, it's not going to happen. No way. Will the Lord ever do that? He's calling you, those that don't want to, respond to his offer of grace what are we told the Lord does in reaction to that? Second Peter 3 and the verse 9. 2 Peter 3 and the verse 15. He is, here's the word, long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is patient, and He's waiting for the fullness of time. His own words in Galatians 4, verse 5, 4 and 5, because God is in no rush to bring in judgment upon us. Robert Ingersoll, notorious atheist in the 19th century, he stopped in the middle of a lecture against God, one of his characteristic diatribes, and he took out his watch with a flourish, and he held it up to his audience, and he challenged, I'll give God five minutes to strike me dead for the things that I have just said. Then when five minutes had passed and he wasn't stricken dead in the middle of that audience, he used that as proof that God did not exist. Theodore Parker said of Ingersoll's claim, and did that gentleman think 
that he could exhaust the patience of the eternal God in five minutes. Another reason for patience, we should be patient because God is patient with us. We're a long way from being what we ought to be or even from what we would desire to be. But God is patient, is He not, with our rebellion, with all of our rationalizations and our justifications and our slowness to understand what life and grace and fellowship with Him and worship of Christ is really all about. And if it were not for His patience, you and I would have been obliterated long, long ago. And the Lord expects us to show the same patience with others that He has displayed towards us. Another reason why we should be patient is the impatient person will always be upset. Now, the fact of the matter is people will not meet our expectations. They won't. They won't always be what we would want them or expect them to be or to do. And if we lack patience here, we'll be a very unpleasant person to live around. But patience leads to a peaceful spirit. Great American preacher Jonathan Edwards wrote a book or a treatise on this subject, and he called it Charity and Its Fruits. And he gives us a very good word picture there of the difference between patience and impatience. And the picture is this. A shallow stream, like an impatient person, is disturbed by all of the unevenness and the obstacles that that shallow stream encounters, and it becomes unsettled, and it makes a big deal of noise in passing over these things. But a deep stream, however, like those who have learned to patiently trust the Lord, passes over the very same obstacles with barely a ripple. As we learn to wait upon the Lord, Isaiah 40 and verse 31, we will grow deep and the trials of life will be more taken in our stride. Again, to show patience, another reason why we should do it is to follow the example of those who have gone before us. I think of the ultimate example of human patience, the one we always point to. Ye have heard, James 5:11 tells us, of the patience of Job and have heard the end of the Lord. The Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. We have other examples in Scripture, how David was patient with Saul, how Stephen was so incredibly patient with those who persecuted and killed him, Acts chapter 7, how our Lord, when all the antagonists were lined up against him, spewing out false accusations, displayed patience. And the words Jesus answered occurred in that passage six times in that trial before Pilate, and that was a clear manifestation of his patience displayed towards impatient, impenitent, iniquitous men. Paul on the mission field displayed incredible patience as well. Somebody was going this way, another one that way, somebody deserting him, and he shows incredible patience. And everybody who has served the Lord in a distinctive way, in a remarkable way, who has made the pages of good Christian history, that person has always been a person who has learned how to rest in the Lord rather than rushing forward and steaming out with their judgments, the reasons for patience, then the recognition of patience. We're thinking here of what patience looks like. 
It means giving people space and time to learn, time to mature, time to develop spiritual roots, because we understand, don't we, that all growth takes time. Patient people will know, like myself, like everyone else, that patient person will say, I am a work in progress. The Lord's not finished with me. He has a lot more to do with me. Sharp edges to be buffed off and all the rest of it. The file will have to be applied. And just as that person determines, that's how it is with me, so they will be with others. We need to be patient. We know those who are parents, whenever a child is, well, learning to walk, whenever they're trying to ride a bicycle, there's a lot of patience there before they can learn these new skills, and so we must be patient with one another. Patience means resisting the tendency that we all have of drawing premature conclusions about things we are not understanding. Everybody has bad days. We all become frustrated by one thing or another. We all carry around burdens that other people have no clue about. And the patient person, when he comes up against a situation involving somebody else, he will be willing to cause some slack to be cut for that person. The impatient person, however, is quick to take offense. Patience as well means holding our tongue. Most harsh words are spoken. Why? Because of impatience, because of frustration. How many times has a Christian more or less dissected and destroyed his testimony in the home, in the family, among co-workers because of a foolish or an impatient outburst? Patience means holding our tongue. And also, the patient person will keep scattering the seed of the gospel to others. With faithfulness, with grace, he or she will keep on the line of what we read in Ecclesiastes 11, 1 and 2. He will know, casting thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. Give a portion to seven, also to eight, for thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. He'll take the terms in Psalm 126, verse 5 and 6. They'll be his guiding light. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. But it's not an instant thing. And how vital it is to exercise patience right here. Do you know what? The people spreading the word. And we have an outreach team that has been on doors for decades, even 50 years, many of them. And they have gone by this principle. They understand that most of us spent years hearing about the truth of the gospel, going to gospel meetings, reading gospel tracts, being engaged in conversation about spiritual things. We spent years of that before we ever responded favorably. And the patient person realizes it will take time for others to respond favorably as well. So they keep praying and they keep publicizing and they keep planting seeds and they refuse to become frustrated and they will not give up. They continue to trust the work of God's blessed Holy Spirit. One of the greatest stories of patience comes from the life of Abraham Lincoln. One of his earliest political enemies was Edwin M. Stanton. Stanton called Lincoln a low, cunning clown. He said he was the original gorilla. 
It was ridiculous, Stanton said, for people to go to Africa to see a gorilla when they could find one easily in Springfield, Illinois. Lincoln never responded to the slander. But when as president, and he needed a secretary of war, he chose Stanton. And his friends were incredulous. What are you choosing that fellow for? He hates you, Lincoln said, because he's the best man. Years later, as the slain president's body lay in state after that assassination, Stanton looked into the coffin, said through his tears, there lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. His animosity had been broken down by Lincoln's long-suffering, patient love. One out. It always does. Moving from patience to kindness. 1 Corinthians 13 and 4, charity suffereth long and is kind. And the two of these go together because in real terms, kindness is the flip side of patience. Other side of the coin, let me explain like this. Long-suffering or patience, it endures the injuries that others inflict upon us. It takes it. But the other side of the coin, kindness pays them back, those inflicting the injuries, with good deeds. And in the Greek language, the root word for kindness means useful. So Paul is saying, I will do anything that will be of use to another person, even if he's my enemy. I will live my life to benefit others. And many of us are really doing that. It's interesting. It's very challenging. That's for sure. And no doubt today we have a lot of aggression in society. We have hostility in society. And sometimes there's an old militancy within our own chest and that tends to say, well, I'm just going to dig in my heels. I'm going to fight fire with fire. That's how I'll respond. And if somebody is not responding to us in the way that we think they should, then we go and we address them forcefully rather than with tenderness. We often choose the intimidating route rather than the softer one. We act as if every encounter, everything is a war that has to be won rather than a misunderstanding that should be worked through and overcome. It's good to take a little test. When you get frustrated or disappointed with someone, does your voice become louder or softer? When there's a disagreement with a business or somewhere in society, do you threaten, you're going to talk to the manager here, tell all your friends what a lousy business these guys are running, or let's have a bit of litigation going here? Or do you work hard to try to understand and resolve the situation? Do you accept the fact that maybe, maybe, just maybe, the problem might be with me? Do you become, when there's a service rendered that you haven't expected or wanted, do you become sarcastic, abusive, or consider, you know, there's a person, and I don't know the problems in their life, and they could be going through the kind of a dark tunnel that I have never passed through myself. When we see somebody in need, do we help the person or do what we can to help? Or do we just start rationalizing and saying, well, you know what, they wouldn't be in the problems that they're in if they had done this and hadn't done that. It's their own fault. And we're blaming the persons for their own 
problems. I think when we look at tests like this, we'll be saying to ourselves, you know what? It's true. I could learn to be a little more kind than I am. And when our Lord told us by His command to love our enemies, He didn't say feel good about them. In the same verse, He tells us do good to them. You see, love is always an action. Kindness has a spiritual impact. Did you know that a survey conducted among Muslims who had converted to Christianity, they found out the number one reason why Muslim leaders had turned to follow Christ was the lifestyle they had seen of the Christians around them. Now, it was a fairly detailed, reliable study. It extended over a 16-year period, involved 750 former Muslims. One Egyptian convert contrasted the love shown by Christians with the unloving treatment of Muslim students and faculty that he had encountered at university. Others were impressed. The Christians treated women as equals, enjoyed loving marriages, and when they came into communities, they discovered, you know what? These people respect the culture of the people they have come to live among. It doesn't matter what we say. It doesn't really matter how truthful it is. Because if we say it in an unkind manner, we neutralize the value of the truth that we speak. They must be spoken with kindness. Kindness has a practical aspect. Many people in the world are hurting. Christian love sees an opportunity, manifests itself through kindness, and it ministers to the physical needs of people, and it involves us giving others what they need physically or emotionally. It means doing what they can't do for themselves. It means taking time to get alongside and suffer with them. The kindness we are called upon to show may involve just basically driving somebody to a, I was going to say a doctor's appointment, but it's usually you just go straight to the A&E now, so right to the hospital mowing somebody's lawn, listening to the same story again and again from a person who doesn't realize that what I'm doing is actually repeating myself again and again. Maybe involves buying a bag of groceries, leaving them around, reading to somebody who can't see well anymore, taking time to pat somebody in the back, acknowledging a job well done by them that nobody else but you has noticed. Sometimes it's just a matter of noticing somebody and calling them by name. And we can all do that. But maybe we don't all do it enough. Two cautionary notes can be sounded here. And I'm leaving the blanks here to fill in what you can do. Cautionary notes. The kindness we exercise is to be motivated by the fact that we care about the person. Not because of what we hope to garner in return. We all know people, and they're really nice to some people right up to their faces because they're hoping, what can I get as a backhander in the deal here? What will my reward be? It must be motivated by care. And the kindness we exercise must be indiscriminate. 
shown to the good and the bad, or friends and our enemies, believers and non-believers as well, not based upon our assessment of how worthy they are or unworthy to receive my kindness, but given because they are valuable and that they are created in the image of God. And sometimes we could end up showing greater kindness to our pets than the people around us. Kindness has a divine template. The greatest model of kindness, I said this right at the beginning, who did Paul have? Who is he describing here? Well, ultimately, he's describing Christ. God himself loving his enemies, doing good to those that opposed him. In Romans 2 and verse 4, or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. God repeatedly does things to benefit even his enemies. Titus 3 and 5, 1 Peter 2 and 3, references teaching the same thing. The greatest model of kindness. And we're looking at our Lord Jesus Christ, of course. In Matthew 11, verse 29 and 30, Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you know that that word easy that our Savior used there in Matthew 11 and verse 13 is the same word, the very same word Paul gives as kindness. Kindness in 1 Corinthians 13. What our Lord is simply saying is, link yourself to me, and I'll show my kindness to you. Two men going in opposite directions on a narrow mountain trail. They met each other head on. You've got the picture here, a precipice on the one side, and sheer rock face on the other. And they, they try and try to get past each other, but they know it's dangerous, can't do it eventually. They decide it won't be done here. And so they, after all the squeezing and manipulation and everything else, realize this is not possible for us to get past one another. And finally, without saying a word, one of the men simply lay down flat on the path, and the other man walked over him. That is love. Love doesn't mind being walked on, provided it's going to benefit somebody else. And that's the spirit that Paul is trying to tease out of this church in Corinth. Some conclusions of that, and with these we close. We've only done two of the 15 descriptions of love. I hope we're challenged, because I am. And I hope we'll be stretched in our activity and faith that we'll think seriously about these things. The first thing, grow in our love for the Lord. Paul is saying, love comes out of our relationship with God. That's the fountain. That's where it flows. That's its beginning point. As I and you truly learn to love God, we will in turn be better at loving others. Practice love in the church. Sometimes we don't give much ground to each other. We might have unrealistic expectations of each other. We might take each other for granted. We need to remind ourselves we're all in the progress of growth and be patient to others as the Lord has been patient to us. And of course, we must take this love out into the world. And as we love others, really love others, 
not with a surface affection, but with a deep love, people will find themselves attracted to the Lord Jesus through us. It's not enough to learn about love. Love is an action. We must put it into practice. 